So I think this industry has been around for a while, but I think it's matured to a point where people have been YouTube creators for years. And I think people are just paying more attention to it now. Um, but I think it's just a lot of sifting through the noise. I think the word creator economy has become very buzzy this year. And I think a lot of mm. companies are trying to associate themselves with that. I, I think especially on the startup side. Hello everybody and welcome back to Media Voices. We are the media-focused podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from around the media world. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And you're back. <laughs> How was your trip? Oh, it was amazing. Croatia, I, I didn't know anything about Croatia. My God, it's beautiful. Now, was it amazing because of how beautiful it was and the food and everything, or because you were away from media news for a little bit? Yes. <laughs> well, before we get into that, then we do want to remind you that we're actually open for entries for this year's Publisher Podcast Awards. So that's going to be an unbelievable amount of work. But as ever, we want to celebrate the best that this industry has to offer. So if you are a publisher and you're very proud of your podcast output, or you're just interested to find out what we're doing with the awards this year, do head across to publisherpodcastawards.com for all the information you'll need. Do it. And that extract you heard probably five minutes ago now is, <laughs> is from my interview with the Information's Creator Economy reporter, Kaya Yuriev. And that extract you heard at the start is from my interview with the Information's Creator Economy reporter, Kaya Yuriev. So we talked about how she covers an industry that is so new and sprawling, some of the challenges of being a creator with a capital C, and how it fits with the Information's other coverage. Very nice. But as Peter mentioned, this first story is a little bit mad and it's a little bit mad because of how quickly it flared up and then kind of vanished. So inevitably, we're talking about Aussie media this week. OK, when I went away on holiday, I had never heard of Aussie media. Mm. Has anyone else had anyone else? I'm, his thing, I'm sure I had heard it, but as a kind of, you know, one off mention thing. I know that a lot of the people who a lot of our listeners in the US in particular had been kind of vaguely aware of them because they had made some big claims but almost nobody outside the media industry had heard of them for reasons that will become very apparent and i knew it was a big story this week when i saw people completely outside my circle going aussie is what what's aussie media and, and what's it done so esther <laughs> why don't you why don't you summarize this for us okay so at the start of the week the new york times basically published quite a big piece detailing some some quite serious allegations about what was going on at the company things going on its leadership team um i think there's one incident a lot of people cited where one of the top executives had impersonated a youtube executive yes. during a conference call with goldman sachs bankers that is so funny. during a funding round that, is, that um, is so funny that bit and they sort of pretended to be this youtube exec saying oh yeah you know aussie media is massively important they're huge on youtube blah 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 in order to get goldman sachs to invest um I, mean, I think the, the the founders tried to write that off as a, a mental health crisis. Um, but I mean, like the, the site itself, I think that they've, they've been going since 2013. They, they raised 18 million back in 2013 to found the company. Um, you know, founder Carlos Watson um, managed to get backing from people like the Emerson Collective, which is run by Lauren Powell Jobs. Um, yeah, they, they, they had 75 employees, which, I mean, okay, that's about the number of people BuzzFeed, spot, uh, BuzzFeed fired in January, but it, it, that's, that's a substantial newsroom for for a site like that Axel um, yeah, Springer they, invested yeah yeah um they've done video interviews with people like uh, Hillary Clinton John Legend 
Um, and yeah, it just seems basically this, this New York Times article ended up triggering like an internal investigation, an FBI investigation. Five days later, it's closed. Yeah, so it finally it, it shut down. People calling it the was it Th- uh, Theranos? Theranos? Was it? I don't Theranos. know. Theranos. Theranos. Yeah. yeah. People call it kind of the the Theranos of the media world, and you can kind of see why that initial valuation and the initial excitement. You know, we didn't know about it at the time, but in retrospect, was was there? They were talking about having insane numbers. They were talking about reaching an unbelievable number of email subscribers. And they were talking about discovering people before what they were terming the mainstream media was. And it turned out to all be based on kind of very, very nebulous and sometimes misleading definitions. So what they turned a subscriber in terms of email was actually just having that person's email account on their system somewhere, not actually actively subscribing to anything. I mean, like a lot of publishers will, will massage their figures and, and claim, you know, slightly higher audience numbers, but the, the level that this has gone to, um, I think at one point that Watson was claiming they had 25 million newsletter subscribers, but according to Comscore, like less than half a million people went to the website in June and July this year. Like it, it was, it was claiming to be this huge, massive, like they were really, really hyping it up and, most normal people are like, yeah, we don't really know. Them. <laughs> they got them. a lot. Of, they got a lot of stick at one point for buying uh, traffic as well. Yeah, but okay, so so that's all. That's all very bad, and obviously they're shutting down. Uh, the people who are going to be victimized by this are not the kind of the board members and the founders. It's going to be the people who were working for them. But is a, a lot of what they were doing is kind of just exaggerated versions, Esther, as you mentioned, of what a lot of the media industry has been doing for years and years. And my contention, I don't know how much you agree with this, is that had they got away with it, had they taken that initial early funding round, even subsequent funding rounds based on those misleading stats and gotten away with it and actually built it into something, people would be talking about it like it was an audacious but successful media company. But then I I gather that that is kind of the a lot of the culture around that kind of Silicon Valley areas very much almost fake it until you make it mm. and if you get caught out that's that's because you're not sort of playing the game properly but well, there are a lot of people who do it. hype yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> the example the two examples i saw that was opposite sides of this was tyrannos which mm. obviously mm. ended up in court um but tesla was the other one which didn't end up in court which became a success mm. and, and it is that idea that if you can keep it going long enough then you might just get away with that brian morrissey chris you highlighted this in the notes brian morrissey's newsletter this week is brilliant on this because and brian's i've always found brian to be one of the most straight talking straightforward guys in this business and he just he pulls no punches in that newsletter well the one bit he says is the fuel of digital media um is these expectations to show hockey stick growth, which we've talked about so many times. Um, but he, what he's saying, and he's right, publishing doesn't work like that. To, really, to build a proper sustainable publishing brand, you need trust and habit, and you need people that are coming back to you, and it takes a long time. You need real people as well. <laughs> yeah, not just email. Address. Well, yeah, ultimately you can't bullshit revenue. In that, in that sense, you do need an actual audience to pay for that kind of stuff or to be a proxy for audience attention and advertiser money. So if anyone doesn't understand what's going on here, they have <laughs> to just read Brian Morrissey on this because yeah. it's absolutely brilliant. Ben Thompson's thing in the 
the New York Times is, is an incredible piece of work. I mean, mm. he's obviously dog right into it, but Brian's just got this moral take on it, which is just brilliant. The, the, the sentence that really stuck out for me from Brian's was, hang on, let me just find it here. It was, in the media business, the sizzle to steak ratio has always fluctuated and traditional media has long been propped up by shared delusions and a high tolerance for bullshit. So it's not just digital media. It has effectively been, numbers are there to be massaged when you're talking to advertisers. It's just that this one was so far beyond the possible, almost, that that there was all sizzle, no steak. I think that's the point, is that, you know, these guys are whatever, they were chancellors and and they pushed a lot and they were... They, they tried to get away with stuff which was ultimately may end up being fraudulent mm. but there's people at serious serious financial organizations that were willing to buy this crap because they're fundamentally greedy bastards <laughs> you know that it could just comes down to greed nothing yeah. else you kind of at some point you do look at the you do look you at you know what phrase is coming here, don't you? You're gonna say bean counters, though, aren't you? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, rapacious capitalistic yeah. bean counters. There was it's it's hard Chris, not it's to look just, at. It's just your Zoom background, it's just everything is burning. Everything on fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's hard not to look at this, and then you look at the outrage with which we all reacted when Facebook massaged its numbers to publishers, and you know we looked at the kind of digital ad fraud. And yet the, that kind of opacity has always been part and parcel of the media industry as a whole. It was just being done to us rather than the, the other way around. There's a brilliant line in, that, uh, in Brian's newsletter where he quotes someone as saying, um, it was when these guys, this guy went along to see, he was from Viacom and he went along to see Larry Page and Sergey Brenner at Google. And his response to when they showed him what they could do, his response was, you're fucking with the magic, boys. <laughs> and I, when they were talking about trackability and not in the openness around these things. I mean, I guess at that time, there was this kind of uh, utopian idea that maybe we were actually going to get real numbers. And it's worse. It's worse <laughs> than it ever was. You know, think, of the, think of the ad tech ecosystem and the bullshit and fraud and just utter nonsense that goes on in that world you sound like bob hoffman now <laughs> yeah well yeah anyway we, we can't move on from this story without talking about sharon osborne yeah this is this, oh, this is kind of the, the nail in the coffin isn't it so sharon osborne uh she spoke to the bbc and she alleged that watson had had, had falsely claimed that she and ozzy Aussie media, Aussie Osborne, mm. had invested in the business. And her quote on the matter is, this guy is the biggest shyster I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> now that's coming from Sharon Osborne, and she must that's... have seen some fucking frauds in her time. Well, wasn't she on one of those programmes with Piers Morgan? And <laughs> You know, one, so one last thing I'm going to say about this, please. Mm. This is why I love independent magazine publishing. You know, when you've, so the last, the last independent publisher, I guess, magazine publisher anyway, that we interviewed or I interviewed was, was Sophie Cross, a freelancer mm. magazine. But we've interviewed, we've interviewed loads of people. Oh, delayed gratification. Uh, what was the, the other one? The kind of environmental one. Anyway, doesn't matter. Independent publishers at their absolute soul may only be publishing three four thousand copies 
but they actually are paying to publish those copies. And that is the absolute authenticity that is at the heart of that sector in this industry. And these guys are just are just a stain, <laughs> absolute stain yeah. on the industry. It might be smaller, but it's real. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah. that's that's my final word. Well, I suppose yeah, I suppose that the kind of the lesson to take away from this, and it's going to be something that's going to be very tricky for parts of the industry to grapple with, is you know, honesty is still the best policy when it comes to talking about audience numbers, when it comes to actually talking about what you can deliver on behalf of advertising partners, and even to your audience. And if anybody wants to get in contact with the 18 million weekly listeners to Media Voices to <laughs> think about any of that, please do just drop us a line. And speaking of very quick stories, moving on to the news in brief. And student news network, The Tab, has been in profit every month since it was bought by Digitalbox last October. So the company, which also owns the satire site, The Daily Mash, got The Tab into profit from its first full month of ownership by switching from a direct sales operation to an automated programmatic advertising solution. Quartz is launching a new podcast called Obsession, a weekly 20-minute exploration of one object or idea based on its signature Obsession newsletter, which I get. Uh, the podcast debut is Quartz's first foray into the audio world since previous efforts ended in 2019. I think this is really, really smart. Definitely. I think I'm, it's very, I'm also very smart. surprised. I'm surprised course didn't have a podcast already but then yeah I think, I think they're just that, trying well, to find think, their feet yeah I think they off. were very focused on on you know getting the content right getting the yeah. newsletters right but this just makes so much sense that not every one of these is is you know is, is the kind of thing I would obsess over but when you get one that you're interested in the stuff is just brilliant it's so good it so just, yeah a podcast yeah. on this would be brilliant it makes me think, yes, to what you were just saying there about, you know, surprised that they didn't do a podcast for a while. And I think you're right, they were focused on it. It always reminds me of what Adam Tinworth said about The Guardian, kind of throwing away their expertise mm -hmm. and kind of that history of specialism within the audio world. And then coming back to podcasting later. Obviously, it's not been anywhere near as long as The Guardian kind of abandoned audio accords. Mm. But they, they did have a quite a strong audio suite at one point. I just wonder, are they building up from nothing again? Or how much of the staff has been retained? I, I honestly don't know the answer. It just always makes me think of that lack of, you know, holding on to expertise. And talking of big numbers, uh, although I suspect this one is not fraudulent, uh, TikTok, <laughs> has hit, TikTok has hit the uh, the billion, one billion monthly active users milestone, and it joins other platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and WeChat as some of the largest social media platforms in the world. And they're also the fastest to a billion. Uh, they're oh. taking just under four years. Uh, aside from Facebook Messenger, which uh, doesn't actually count as they forced through an update from the main app for a lot of their users to get to a billion very quickly. But yeah, that, I mean, that's good for TikTok. I think they're sort of really starting to be taken seriously by a lot of the big players. I <laughs> still cannot see how any publisher ever <laughs> is ever going to make money from TikTok. I'm, I'm, by doing TikTok to, dances, Peter. I just, I'd love to be proved wrong, but I just don't see it. And the Daily Mail owner has been given an extension on an £810 million bid to take the company private. So Lord Rothermere now has until the 28th of October to make an offer as negotiations continue with pension trustees. So potentially a big deal, but it just remains to be seen on whether it's going to go through. And it will start with the Daily Mail. But more so. 
So we know many media companies have struggled with an event strategy since the pandemic basically shut everything down. But a bet on virtual events is paying off for TechCrunch, which has doubled its event revenue. That's doubled over the past year. That's, uh, I mean, to go virtual and double your revenues is pretty good going, yeah? Well, actually, what I thought was interesting about this is that they said at the start of this year, they were like, look, we're just going to make all our virtual events for 2021 virtual we're not you know we're not going to sort of try and get back to in person we're just that that's just our commitment um and as a result they've they've just had this really firm idea of exactly what they're presenting this year and that's really really helped them get that revenue was 2020 a write-off for them not so no much. they, I yeah, think they, they did quite well yeah they, they outperformed most of the industry but then but then yeah they're, they're a tech brand the kind of expected yeah. to be faster to start that stuff and they've got the audience in place i wrote that piece for the drum not too long ago i think it was week before I went to Cornwall about the about News UK's new event strategy. And they're really building on exactly what TechCrunch is doing with their kind of hybrid virtual real life mm-hmm. events. I think if you get the virtual event format, right, it's it's a winner. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, if you're in London or New York or wherever, going along an event is pretty easy. If you're like me in the Northwest, it's a pain in the ass. So it just makes life a lot easier. Well, that's what um, that's what News UK was saying. Basically, before the pandemic, all their events were based in London, and so they only got London folk. But now, sixty percent of the people who are attending there, even some of their awards dues, which are you know still quite industry heavy, so you'd expect them to be based in around London, are coming from outside of the capital. And my favourite subject: Facebook is continuing to deal with the fallout from the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files investigation, which they're still publishing on number ten now. Um, So its global head of safety, Antigone Davis, was hauled in front of the Senate on Thursday, uh, which is a very, very quick response from them, um, to testify about the effects of Facebook and Instagram on young users. Uh, And as we're recording this, the whistleblower, um, we we still don't know who it is, but they're due to appear on 60 Minutes this evening. Um, They're going to do an interview. uh, I mean, goodness knows what will come out, but the preview suggests that um, Facebook's decision to relax safeguards was too soon after election day and basically enabled groups to plan the January 6th storming of the Capitol building. Um, mm-hmm. And other extracts that they've said have said that basically the um, newsfeed changes of 2018 have wrecked a lot of things. Imagine, imagine if Mark Zuckerberg. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How cool would that be? He just had like, he woke up one night in a cold sweat and just thought, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't do this anymore. Done? Yeah. Somebody had flipped the empathy switch on in the back yeah. of his head and he suddenly died. That'd be the coolest thing. This week I spoke to Kaya Yuria, who is the information's creator economy reporter. We talked about her work covering creators and influencers for their business audience. And I started by asking her what covering the creator economy actually involves. So I write a newsletter Monday through Thursday, basically on everything that's happening in this industry that includes startups raising funding to service social media personalities in different ways, like providing credit cards or tax and accounting help um, to profiles of creators themselves and how they make money and what platforms they're on. And I also am tracking how the major social media platforms are competing for online talent. I spend a lot of time talking to investors, startup founders, and executives from tech companies. And my focus is definitely on the newsletter, but I also occasionally am writing standalone stories. I help with our events. We're having our 
very first creator summit in October. So I'm helping with planning that. Um, and we also have this database that we launched uh, with information about startups in the creator economy. So I'm updating that as well. <laughs> so those are kind of the, <laughs> the different elements that go into it. And as for what a creator is, I mean, it's a great question. I, I look at it as someone who has an online presence, they're making some sort of content that could be video, photo, audio, and typically they're making money from their audience and their fans and they're driving some sort of purchase or behavior. So that could be to get people to travel to a certain destination or subscribe to their newsletter or buy a certain makeup brush. So there's definitely a, a commerce element <laughs> to it, which I think is why we were calling them influencers a lot too at the beginning. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the influencer terminology because I, I think that almost seems to be used a lot more than the term creator. Is, is there a difference between the two or do you say it's just two terms for the same person? To me, really, I use them interchangeably. I think influencer almost became this dirty word a little bit <laughs> of, <Yeah>. just, <laughs> of just them shoving ads in front of their audience. So I think creator has slowly started to become more popular because there's a lot that goes into it. They're producing video, they're editing video, they're taking photos, or they're producing a podcast. So I think creator has a little bit of a, maybe a nicer connotation. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you go about covering an industry that is, I mean, it's, it's a really new industry and it's sort of sprawling you know there's already lots of definitions about what creators even are what they do yeah how, how do you go about sort of defining that and uncovering that yeah what's interesting is it's new and it's not new right like youtube has been paying creators since 2007 and sharing ad revenue with them so i think creators really in the early days were bloggers on the internet so i think they've See, been straight, around straight, for... straight, away, straight away i just thought 2007 is not that long ago and then i just yes. realized how long ago it was 2021 now <laughs> okay um so i think this industry has been around for a while but i think it's matured to a point where people have been youtube creators for years and i think people are just paying more attention to it now um but i think it's it's just a lot of sifting through the noise. I think the word creator economy has become very buzzy this year. And I think a lot of mm. companies are trying to associate themselves with that. I think especially on the startup side, it's really vetting startups to make sure they have a product or maybe outside funding. And it's not this very early stage idea of, you know, someone in a basement, although lots of great companies started that way. <laughs> um, and I think too, just figuring out what's really unique and what space isn't super crowded. I mean, there's dozens of startups that are offering the same thing. So it's about looking at who's doing something unique and different. Yeah. Um, and for the information, the, the information is very sort of selective about the verticals it launches. How does this sort of fit into what they're trying to do as a, as a wider company? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. We have a very business focused audience. You know, my readers are venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, startup founders, people who work at social media companies, bankers, research analysts. So just looking at the numbers, I mean, there's been a ton of investor excitement around the creator economy. We found mm. from our database that in just the first six months of this year alone in the US, more than $2 billion was invested in creator economy startups. So it's definitely an area that our readers are paying attention to and investors are paying attention to. Um, and the same goes for social media companies. I mean, creator announcements have been center stage at developer conferences this year. Mark Zuckerberg has done Instagram lives, teasing tools for creators and kind of trying to show it's a top, um, top priority. So I think it just, it's an area of business that I think there's a lot of interest in. And I think there's been a lot of really great culture reporting about influencers, but mm. what's sometimes ignored or not well understood is that creators are businesses in their own right and are some of the savviest entrepreneurs of our time and are launching real products. Um, in 2019, 
a group of influencers, including the Fat Jewish, who was one of the early Instagram influencers, launch it was they had launched this um, canned rosé brand, Babe, and it was bought by Anheuser Busch. So <laughs> they are real <laughs> entrepreneurs. It's not just um, peddling ads on social media. Yeah, is there a kind of the, the, it feels like there's another side to this? If if you're sort of I, I don't want to diminish the work they're doing at all, but if you're a sort of serious business person and you're looking at some of these people, I, I suppose. Although it is maturing as an industry, we're still at such an early stage in terms of influences as a kind of long-term thing. I, I suppose you get people like Logan Paul that, that perhaps end up on the wrong side of where they should be. That is it quite difficult to sometimes convince people in companies that actually these solo people are worth the risk? Like, are, are there challenges around that? Especially as we we don't know. We don't you know if, if they want to retire in five years, that's going to be quite challenging. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of creators that have gotten themselves in hot water. There's a lot of drama in the YouTube space in particular. Um, there's been Instagram accounts that have popped up to chronicle the drama. So mm. there definitely is. But I don't think it's any different than covering traditional celebrities. Actors get in hot water all the time. And I don't know that that taints the the broader industry. I mean, creators, I think, probably have a little bit more to prove than traditional entertainment. But I think there's been enough examples and enough people are paying attention now that I don't know that it will, you know, have a negative impact on the broader industry. But then you see, you see that there are impacts. David Dobrik was a co-founder of a photo sharing app. And after some allegations came out um, in Business Insider about his friend group, um, one of their lead investors pulled their investment and he stepped down from the board. So there are definitely real consequences for, for negative actions. Yeah, I suppose it's just challenging. If, if if you've got a company that ends up in hot water, they can sort of quietly swap out their leadership team and, and forge a path forward. Whereas, whereas if it's all on one person and they and they do something or or decide to step back, there's a lot of, I suppose, a lot of investment that just ends up not going anywhere. Yeah, and Dispo, the company, I mean, that's what they did. David Dobrik stepped down and they have a different leadership team and they raised funding again and they're forging forward. So it's not it's not indifferent to a, to a, a traditional company. Yeah. Um, and the one I found interesting, that there's a number of bigger companies like Disney that are launching their own creator programs. And I'm, I'm curious about how, how this sort of, how does this differentiate them from hiring talented employees? Like, like what makes the difference between somebody you hire into the company and sort of launching a, a program like this to, to bring talent in that way? Yeah, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to tap into younger audiences. So some of the creators that they're working with, you know, they're either training them to become creators for Disney or some of the other programs like Chipotle, they're asking them for their ideas. So, and they're getting compensated for that, but I'm sure that it's at a much lower rate than hiring a branding expert or a social media expert. So I think they're really trying to tap into trends, uh, what their fans think, and trying to tap into their talent. Um, and it's probably a cheaper way for them to do it than hiring them as employees, unfortunately, for the creators. Yeah. So what, what are these funds that people like Facebook are launching then? What, what are they trying to do with that? Yeah, so there's a number of funds. I mean, it's crazy if we were talking about this three years ago, none of these funds basically would have existed. <laughs> but Facebook has pledged a billion dollars, same for TikTok. YouTube has a fund for people creating short form video for its new feature shorts, and they've pledged $100 million to that. So the majority of these funds are rewarding people based on engagement. So if their videos get a lot of views, they get a certain amount of money. 
Snapchat for a period of time was giving away a pool of a million dollars a day <laughs> to the creators making the most entertaining videos. They've scaled that back to millions per month, but it's still a lot of money. So it's this monetary incentive. And they're also trying to position this as you don't have to be a big creator to earn. You could have a video do well and you could still get paid. Um, this is sounding a little bit familiar in, in it's, it seems to be a little bit of a trap that a lot of publishers fell into sort of 10 years ago that they were being incentivized to chase clicks chase views and all that sort of thing yeah. um, is, is that likely to have an impact on perhaps the the quality of what the creators produce like if they start sort of chasing outrage and misinformation is, is that a risk or are they a bit savvier than that these days I think they're a little savvier. I mean, I think there are definitely influencers who are peddling, you know, anti-vaccine and COVID misinformation. Yeah, there's there's a huge lot on TikTok, I know, earlier in the year. Yeah, absolutely. So there definitely is. But I think the broader influencer population is not doing that. I think they are chasing views and viral videos, but in different ways. So maybe doing pranks or stunts. And that's also gotten people into hot water. I mean, yeah. I mean, we see these trends all the time, like the milk carton, the milk cart challenge and all these things that are hugely dangerous or the Benadryl challenge or Tide Pods, if we think back to a few years ago on YouTube. Oh. Um, but I think the bigger downside of these programs is you know, some creators have said they haven't made more than 15 or $20 a month from some of these funds, because if they're not hitting a certain amount of views, they're not going to be getting a big paycheck from it. So I think it just it puts a lot of pressure to keep churning out content and trying to make viral hits in order to make money. And I think that leads to burnout. So I think the way a lot of these funds are set up, it's just purely paying on views and engagement. So I think that's the, that's the bigger concern for creators is, is burnout. And how do you see the creator economy changing over the next few years? I'm thinking these people are going to, so especially for a lot of the younger ones that do the viral stunts, they're going to get to the stage where, you know, maybe they hit their 30s, their audience hit their 30s, and they're not up for the pranks anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they have to evolve their content. We've seen it. I mean, I've, I've spoken with YouTubers who have been on YouTube since 2006, and they started doing music videos, and they've just kept evolving with their audience. And I think not everyone will be able to successfully do that. Some people have stepped away and said they don't want to do this anymore. Um, but I think we're going to continue to see this area grow. Um, as I said, this industry is nothing new, but I think we've just gotten to a point where people are taking it a little bit more seriously and weighing it as a possible career path. I know during the pandemic, a lot of people kind of reevaluated what they wanted to be doing with their lives. I talked to lots of creators who were laid off or furloughed from corporate jobs and just started playing around on TikTok and then suddenly have this big following and are trying to make a business there and not going back to a corporation. So I think there is definitely some some draw there for people to be able to have their own hours and do something creative. Um, I think probably some of the investor excitement will probably fade a little bit. Um, I've already seen at least one of these startups shut down. There's hundreds of them. I think we're probably going to see some consolidation. There's a lot of startups that are doing similar things, but I don't think this industry is going to go away. Yeah. Do you think there'll be some consolidation in the platforms that have sprung up to help creators? I know you you posted a chart the other day that showed that there were, I think there were sort of seven or eight that had these billion dollar valuations. It yeah. just seems a bit insane. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely, it's crazy. I mean, we've seen Patreon has been around for a long time since 2013. And now we're seeing lots of competing membership services pop up. OnlyFans mm. has obviously had huge success during, during the pandemic. And there's a number of OnlyFans copycats that are either going the more explicit route or going a safer route with less ex um, explicit content. So 
I think, yes. I don't think all of these companies are going to survive. But as we've seen, I mean, you know, there's really interesting areas of the creator economy that I think people don't think about. One of the the highly valued startups in the space is Kajabi, which is an online course provider. So a lot of creators now are shifting their business to teaching other people how to how to build a following online and doing that okay. through online courses. So we're just seeing the, the industry continue to evolve. Yeah. What did you make of the OnlyFans controversy a couple of weeks ago when they decided they were going to completely remove porn? And it was like, well, that's their entire business model. Oh, my gosh. It was. I, I mean, my whole newsletter basically that week was devoted to, to all the developments. Um, I think in some ways it was a really successful PR campaign for OnlyFans. I, oh, I, was I see. In the, I was in the <laughs> car. I was in the car and every single radio station talk show morning was talking about it. And I, I looked at some uh, uh, Google data that Google had provided to me and some of the top queries were what is OnlyFans. So I think it got them a lot of attention of what the platform is. I think sometimes what especially me who's so focused on this space, I assume everyone knows all these companies. So I think ultimately, I mean it was it caused a lot of chaos for creators who really have yeah. have OnlyFans has built this business around them and and to pull that out I think was was a struggle and just a reminder that creators no matter what platform you're on, you you don't own that platform or your audience. So I think it's it was a big wake up call to for the broader industry of figuring out maybe I need a personal website or my own mailing list or a better way to be in touch with my fans because platforms can make major changes like that overnight. Do you, do you see this sort of level of influence that these creators have on the industry? Is, is that sustainable or is it going to be one of these bubbles that sort of pops in a couple of years? I think we've seen it continue and just strengthen. You know, I think creators are so important to these social platforms. They drive a lot of the trends and engagement. So mm. I was in a an NYU class last night speaking and you know, the majority of of students in the class followed at least 10 creators, if not more, maybe 20. So, um, so I think there is a lot of interest. And I think especially during the pandemic, with the rise of TikTok, also, we've kind of formed these stronger bonds <laughs> with creators, yeah. because we've spent so much more time online. And I think even as we return, hopefully, to normal, eventually, I don't think that's going to go away. I mean, we were following creators before the pandemic, too. But I think we've become a little bit more invested, too. And there, there there seems to be more of a willingness as well to pay for content. You've seen Patreon and Cameo mm. and all these platforms where we're tipping, you know, at virtually every social platform has rolled out tipping. And obviously it's early stages. And I think the super fans are going to be the ones doing that. But there definitely has been a shift um, in data that I've seen, too, from various influencer marketing agencies and talent agencies where people are willing to pay creators directly, which is a, a big shift from from past years. So I think their their influence is definitely strengthening. Yeah. Is the burnout a concern to the business side? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Every single creator I talk to, I ask about burnout and pretty much every single person says, yes, <laughs> I'm burnt out. I mean, you don't have the support of when you work at a corporation, mm. you don't have paid time off, you don't have healthcare benefits. There is a lot lacking in the infrastructure. Um, and I think just the way some of these platforms are set up, they're rewarding you for posting. So if you take a break for a week, you can totally drop off from the algorithm recommendation. It can be hard mm -hmm. to build that back up. There is a risk that you know people will forget about you or unfollow you. So I think there is a tremendous amount of pressure and it will cause people to, to I think, seek other paths because you're on this hamster wheel sometimes where uh, you feel like you really can't get off 
Yeah, I suppose that's the pro to a company, isn't it? You can take a week's holiday and hopefully it won't all completely <laughs> fall to pieces when you're away. Exactly. Um, and I suppose your role is probably one that wouldn't have existed five, ten years ago. So how do you see your own role as a reporter evolving as, I suppose, the creator economy matures and changes? Yeah, I mean, I think that this really isn't a job for one person at one outlet. I think just like we have multiple tech <laughs> reporters or multiple retail reporters at an outlet, we're going to have multiple creator economy reporters. Uh, I love doing the newsletter every day because it really helps me stay on top of trends. Um, I think eventually probably I will expand to doing more stories and features as well and just kind of continue uh, tracking what's happening and, and how things are changing. But I think newsrooms are really are really thinking about this now and not just as, oh, this is kind of a fun internet culture area. This is a real <laughs> business story. Are you seeing many other creator economy reporters being hired by other outlets or are you still a bit of an outlier? I'm still a bit of an outlier. Uh, Taylor Lorenz at the New York Times has really been a pioneer of this beat and has been covering this for a long time. There's a lot of really great reporters at Business Insider. And I'm seeing kind of more reporters focus more on the creator economy and, and do more of those stories. But it's not a big cohort <laughs> of reporters, yeah. definitely. I suppose there's quite a lot of overlap with platforms in the tech space, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and your main outlet for reporting is the newsletter. Um, I was just trying to get a sense of how this worked because the information's renowned for having its um, everything's very, very paywalled. Is, is the newsletter something anybody can access and subscribe to or is that part of the information subscription? So it's part of the information subscription, but if you don't have a subscription, you can sign up and receive the newsletter um, for free for a trial period, which has been ongoing. Um, so, you know, the idea is to bring more people in and to get more people to subscribe, but the newsletters are not paywall to start. So it's a little bit more accessible. So the last thing we ask all our guests is what the last thing is you read or saw that really affected you or, or something you could recommend? Yeah, so I I was thinking about this and... I've been reading so much coverage around 9-11 with the 20th anniversary this month, and there was this really amazing piece in The Atlantic that really stood out to me. Um, It was grief and conspiracy 20 years after 9-11, and the reporter actually knew this family, so she she approached it really from a personal perspective. Um, from a personal lens, but she wrote about how the death of their son impacted different people in the family. You know, the father kind of went down this 9-11 conspiracy rabbit hole and still, you know, and then while the mom is really, you know, doesn't believe in those conspiracies and the son had a fiance and there was a falling out between the mom and fiance. And it just kind of goes through this very complicated family story and just how people deal with grief in different ways. And it just, it really just stuck with me and was such so beautifully written. And I recently went to the 9-11 memorial and I just felt very emotional being there and just reading all this coverage. And it's amazing how much I was very young when it happened, but um, it just, it just really hit me. And I just thought the Atlantic piece was a very kind of honest and raw look at, at how this tragedy affects people, affected people and affects people to this day. If you didn't know, we have a daily newsletter that brings you the four most important stories in publishing and media as chosen by us every day. Um, I just know how much work this is because basically I didn't do it for a week and it was amazing. It was so relaxing to let these two do it. So have a look and uh, take advantage of the very hard work that my colleagues (laughs) have done on the newsletter. Uh, if you want to sign up, you can go to our website, voices.media, or directly from our Twitter profile, which is at Media Voices Pod. 
And if you do fancy supporting us in the creation of either this podcast or the newsletter itself, you can go to our Ko-Fi page, or Ko-Fi, I think it is, because it rhymes with no fee. And you can do that by going to voices.media slash support, uh, where it's going to take you to a link to our page. And also, you know what, even if you don't have a couple of quid you can kick in, if you can just tell anybody that you think might be interested in the weekly media roundup, just let people know because that helps us grow and ultimately that's what we want we want to be able to do more with what little time we have not on this earth that sounds very maudlin but like (laughs) (laughs) the little time we have to dedicate to media voices we want to get to our 85 million subscribers and finally if you're still listening and you have a podcast of your own the publisher podcast awards are now open as of 12 p.m on monday (laughs) so you can go to publisherpodcastawards.com they will be open until early December all the information is on the website uh, we really look forward to reading your entries but until next week when we'll be back with another fantastic guest and a tour through all the news and views from the media world over the next week thank you very much for listening and do stay safe <laughs> <laughs>